All right, greetings, you gloriously miserable accursed. Hey, I have some great news for you. We have 100% of our political panelists here on the pod this week. Jordan Leitnitz is back. And Scott Reed and Corey Tonight are here. And of course, I'm David Hurley. And like Carl Spackler at the Bushwood Country Club, I never leave this place. Curse of politics, Greenskeeper. Credit problems. A lot of people say that doesn't mean anything, Greenskeeper. I'm just trying to stay one step ahead of the Gophers, 52 weeks of goddamn year. All right, let's get to this today's show. We're going back to Alberta. Cinderella story. <laughs> Cinderella story. Out of nowhere, former Greenskeeper about to become Masters champion. Uh, going back to Alberta, two weeks down, two to go in a neck and neck race between Notley and Smith. We'll look at a new abacus poll, the issue of voting in wildfire affected areas, Nazi comparisons and jag meat disavowals. Then what else could it be but a full-blown passport crisis? What's meaningful about this, if anything, our cursed clipping is Chantelle Bear's piece in the star on Pierre Polyev's need to unite all conservatives. And then, of course, the great Gordon Pinson will call out for our hey yous. Jordan, Scott, Corey, it's summer out there. It's summer. It is. Beautiful. We made it. It was a close one. We made it. My, uh, I tried, to, I tried summary? to cut my lawn. Tried to cut my lawn yesterday, and, yeah. uh, and a creature had chewed through the hard plastic gas tank on my uh, on my lawnmower. No way. Yeah. So it's I discovered. Sign. What did you say to Sam about that? <laughs> I discovered that duct tape can't actually solve every problem. I thought it would fix it, but it's oh, no. no. <laughs> gasoline ate through the uh, glue of that. So I uh, I own a brand new lawnmower. I, I feel like there's like a Polytel product though that can probably do that. You know, like the one where they paint the screen and then turn it into a boat. You know, that that yeah, one. Yeah, I just when something like that happens to me, that's a sign it's time for a beer and a hammock. Like it's the world is just telling you that. Number nine out of ten. Excellent. Um, Leafs lost while we were away. Yep. Yep. And yeah. the Oilers. And the Oilers last night. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but the Jays won, and uh, and so that was good. There we go. Yep. Thanks for that, Corey. You had us at the game. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about passports. Hey, um, does anybody on this Zoom have any idea what the images were in the passport before last week? <laughs> I had no fucking idea what was in the passport. Anybody know what was in the passport? Well, I did only because I'm old and I remember the cycle of controversy that happened in 2012 when when Harper brought in the current suite of images. Um, and, you know, as part of really, I think, a, a move to further his interpretation of history and Canadian identity. And it was one of a number. And yeah, people raised eyebrows then, but that would really be the only reason. I think you only stare at your passport when you're like waiting interminably at an airport. Like most people don't meditate on it. So Jordan, what is the motivation for these changes? Like what is the government responding to in making these changes? I think it's the worst sort of motivation, which is that there is none. And that this is likely something that was proposed from within the bureaucracy and that no one at any point paused to say, do we need to do this? Is this a good idea? And what are the political ramifications of it? Uh, certainly there, I think this is an interesting issue because it tells us a couple things. It tells us some interesting things about how the government may or may not view its own legacy, its own interpretation of Canadian identity. This is if you want to do a real deep read into it um, and, and how Trudeau is positioning himself 
relative to his predecessor, obviously, on all those things. But equally interesting, it tells us a whole lot about what issues management is and is not happening within ministers' offices and PMO, because this is something, so we heard rumors, you know, for, for a few weeks that there was going to be big redesign, even up to including the liberal red cover, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, there was really Everett no effort. Sickle. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> and there was really no effort made to squelch that, which is in and of itself a bit weird. Um, and then it's like nobody thought through the political implications of these particular changes. Nobody thought that perhaps the Legion would be upset to see some veterans things removed and and no one tried to preempt uh, a negative statement there. There was really no concerted effort to control the story after it came out. So, and, and really, so no there's no, like, are you telling me Jordan that there's no, uh, cause you would know this and I wouldn't, I mean, is there any constituency out there that demands decolonization of the passport? Or I mean, is there some sort of circle of voters out there that I'm too old to be aware of that <laughs> are in favor of all this? Well, sure. Like, I think that there are voters who, you know, and even there were people at the time in 2012 that pointed out that the passport was overwhelmingly full of men and there was a lot of colonial symbolism and those sorts of things. And that, you know, that's part of a broader discussion about how Canadian history is taught and interpreted and so on. But like, was that a pressing issue today that needed to be dealt with? No, I, I don't think so. So that leaves us with either this was an intentional and mindful move on the part of the Trudeau government to advance a particular narrative about Canadian identity. And that's where we could do a deep read that I think this, it, you know, to me, this is interesting if you sort of pair it with Trudeau's speech at the end of convention where he stepped up and tried to own the woke label, right? Which I have to say, you know, as someone who, and like Corey has called me woke on this show. So I guess, I guess I own that corner of the quadrant, but uh, it's not a label. I think that any progressive, you know, should necessarily be rushing to embrace because right. it's something also that to me certainly connotes a real performativity. Like it's really about a very certain performative type of progressivism that frankly the liberals are often accused of so for the prime minister to come out and even a, even in a friendly crowd to pick that as a bit of an inflection point Place to like, stand and fight yeah well it's weird right at at best and so i think that the the risk is that when you look at things like this and you kind of read it with stuff like that that maybe was just a moment to play to play to that particular crowd but, you know, then you start to get a narrative uh, that reinforces a government that is like that's a symbol of being focused on the wrong priorities. Like this stuff is not important to most Canadians. Most Canadians, as we've discussed before, do have a sense of pride in what Canada is in Canadian history. I think Canadians are able to, generally speaking, hold two ideas at once, uh, which is that there are things in our past that are very problematic that need to be addressed, but that also we can have pride in who the country is uh, and how we got there, and that we can kind of go forward in like a nuanced way and address these things and evolve together. That is sort of the point of having a country. Um, and uh, really, I think this this kind of stuff just drives at the idea that Trudeau is out of touch on this on a personal level and that he's far more interested in these inconsequential to many symbols uh, than he is in, you know, perhaps the idea that Canadians are really just interested in getting a passport, uh, which is still the number one passport story that's fresh in people's minds. Uh, 
So to have trotted this out with like almost zero context around those things no to me makes very yeah. little sense and says that there was not a political, like a strong political thought at the helm of this. And that is maybe in and of itself, like the biggest crime of this whole distracting story. Okay, Corey, try to decode that. That was damning what Jordan just said. That was a beating. Now let's let's try, <laughs> let's try to de let's try to decode this because she hit on something that really is the, the primary thought I have about this, which is, you know, this is not a big issue. This is not going to dominate our politics for a long period of time, and most Canadians won't care about this. But some people will care about it, and. <clears throat> It's always been my experience that the people that are opposed are going to care a lot more than the people that are supportive of this, about it. And, you know, I have this metaphor I use about putting bricks in the wall every day that you're in government that ultimately seal off your defeat. So if you're at this stage of the government with its current profile, um, what, what is the... What, why would they think they needed to do this? Like they're sitting around saying it's going to net, 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 this will cost us votes. So why would you do it? I think it's in part uh, uh, an unraveling of, of things that were on the list of, of items on the Harper legacy. And it's, it's just one more thing that they're kind of deconstructing to, to turn the clock back to, to pre Harper days. Uh, because I, I think there was a lot more deliberateness in terms of the initial changes, uh, and they were part of a suite of other things that the Harper government was doing, including uh, changes around the uh, the citizenship test that you would have to take that had a much larger focus on you know Canadian history and played up some elements of of the Canadian narrative and played down some others. Like you know, so you know, there, this there's there's been a ping pong game going on between the Liberals and the Conservatives around some of these national identity sorts of issues and and you know what spin you put on canadian history um uh I'll, I'll, I'll take time for just one joke of course you know this is most damaging with all those veterans of the war of 1812 who are probably going to be really upset <laughs> that their contribution uh hasn't uh hasn't now, that been, was a flashback Corey. Um, i forgot our brief national moment of yeah. war of 1812 obsession yeah. Yeah, no, there was that. I think we even added a loss of uh, I think we, you know, it's uh, yeah. So look, there. This has been going on for a long time, and you know, there's there is a, uh, I think, long been a a a, a Trudeau senior uh, uh, obsession with the charter, uh, with uh, uh, with peacekeeping. You know, sort of a, call it a Pearson uh, Trudeau legacy, and and recasting of what the country's about uh and you know whether it's around official bilingualism and uh and multiculturalism at the expense of you know some of the uh, uh, uh the more british uh, institutions whether it be the monarchy or or things like that so you know this has been going on for a long time it is just small ball i think it was small ball when the conservatives were doing it i think it's small ball when uh, when the liberals do it, it's uh, it is a distraction, and I do agree. It does, you know tends to the people it annoys tends to be more of an issue for than the people that uh, that support it. Uh, but you know we're we're talking about such small numbers. I think on stuff like this that it, it at the end of the day doesn't really move the needle much. Um, but well, it, unless it Corey, unless Corey, unless Corey, it's part of a, a larger a larger narrative. And and you know I've talked on the pod about this government's uh, disinclination 
to wrap itself in the Canadian flag and be patriotic in the way that, frankly, previous liberal administrations, including Trudeau Sr., have been. I mean, I saw Trudeau Sr. campaigning this country in front of nothing but a hundred-foot Canadian flag uh, as yeah. his back as his backdrop. Right. Well, and, but some of that has sort of changed a bit. And I think, you know, one of the weird things that came out of uh, the pandemic and the, and the convoy and all of those things was that, you know, you see somebody driving by with a, a, a truck with a, a, a Canadian flag on it. Uh, you know, if you were to go back in time, you know, rolling around with the Canadian flag, what might have been viewed as, as, as symbolism for the Liberal Party. In fact, the Liberal logo basically looks like a Canadian flag. Uh, to now, it's it's uh, being, I think, co-opted uh, by those folks where uh, it's uh, it's symbolism for, you know, in its most contemporary sense has, has changed a bit. So, you know, I, I think there's there's been that. Um, but uh, but look, uh, I think um, in, in the past when the liberals have, have, you know, used those symbols and wrapped themselves in the flag that, a lot of it has actually been around government programs. It's been around things like Medicare. It's been around things like immigration policy. Uh, uh, it's been around uh, foreign policy insofar as uh, it involved peacekeeping. So, you know, it, it's you know, different than what you would see national symbols looking like in a lot of other countries, which would be, you know, touching, you know, deeper values or, or symbolism or histor historical events. Instead, it, you know, is more like, you know, the top line of a liberal election platform. So, you know, it's, yeah, I think, you know, doing that has been one of the reasons why the liberal brand has been so successful over time is it has been largely the party of the flag, and which is why its natural, you know, resting support base is in the low 30s as opposed to, you know, the conservatives, which typically have been in the high 20s. So, like, it's... Yeah, you know, I, I do think they have over time, you know, had a bit of an advantage because of that uh, portrayal of, of uh, the country's history and its institutions. But uh, I think it's changed a bit over time. And I think uh, one of the things that Harper and Kenny, when he was heritage minister and then immigration minister, uh, probably don't get enough credit for is, is uh, changing that narrative a little bit. And I think the passport stuff is uh, an attempt to unspool it a bit. With wildfires continuing to rage across Alberta and all the displacement and destruction they bring, I simply want to convey this message from our presenting sponsor, TELUS. When things are at their worst, Canadians can count on TELUS to be at its very best. That's in terms of both financial resources and human compassion, the heart, Hurley-Burleyites, that always drives just how far a group of people will go to help. In TELUS's case, they've made an initial commitment of $5 million to local charities and on-the-ground organizations supporting relief efforts like the Canadian Red Cross and the Salvation Army. That's the money part. And then there's the people part. As you can imagine, with a widespread natural disaster like this one, affecting over 19,000 evacuees at last count, connectivity to loved ones and emergency services is critical. TELUS technicians are working 24-7 to bolster infrastructure and connectivity under some very tough conditions. Think getting emergency generators up and running so additional cell sites can power wireless all over the province, erecting a new cell tower outside Drayton Valley so evacuees and first responders can stay connected, and adding extra network technology like smart hubs and power banks to evacuation centers. The phrase, it's a team effort, has been thrown around so frequently it's become a reflexive response that's lost its power. I want to reclaim it here. 
because so many groups working across the company are committing themselves to help. The TELUS Friendly Future Foundation, TELUS Edmonton and Northern Alberta Community Board, TELUS Calgary and Southern Alberta Community Board, TELUS Indigenous Communities Fund, TELUS Agriculture and TELUS Health. And it goes far beyond the connectivity supports I've already mentioned. Food, water, diapers, disaster kits, fundraising drives, mental health supports for farmers, emergency veterinary care for cattle, and so much more. TELUS is also poised to respond to the rainfall and flooding in communities across BC. I'll leave it there, except to say, let's all hope, pray, for better news in the days to come. You know, Scott, just last week, the, the Liberals profiled uh, Cretchen at their convention who ended every speech he's ever given in his life with Vive la Canada. Yeah. Right? Um, so, what's going on? How do, who, what kind of person was in a room and said, you know, I think it's time we took Terry Fox off this thing. Right. Well, listen, um, I graduated a degree in history, albeit an undergraduate degree, so I don't want to put on airs, but I'm a history buff. I'm a 55-year-old man who is as white as a box of salt. So I'm going to have preferences in this debate, okay? Um, um, and they're not, you know, and they don't sort of take me toward, let's, like, first of all, I don't care that desperately, so I'm in the vast majority of people who fit into that category. Um, but the degree to which I pay attention, I'm sort of like, well, how about these starkly bland... Uh, kind of indiscernible uh, images of, I don't know, uh, a child, possibly Inuit, maybe not, playing soccer, I guess. I don't know. What the fuck is going on there? What does that got to do with anybody or anything? I don't care. It doesn't doesn't offend me, but it doesn't doesn't. No, no, no. That cover is a crime against design. We can all agree. No. Actually, no. I'm going to zag there. I was going to say, the one thing I like is I like the cover. I like keeping the coat of arms, but adding a little... Hint of sort of the 87 Canada Cup. Uh, I kind of thought that was, I dug that. Um, but like, you know, aside from all the, I am in, I think, very firm agreement with Jordan. Um, because what I think what it's mostly about is, you know, I didn't have a lot of time for a bunch of the small C conservative, large C conservative sort of, you know, Pearl and Union Jack clutching we saw around all this. But my my general view is this issue works and is uh, better for the conservatives because they got themselves all riled up. So maybe that got some contributions or donations made to them. It didn't feel to me like it was done with intention or much deliberateness or much thought for the for the liberals. And so I go to the rule of three and I say to this government, right, at 29 or 30 or 28 percent or whatever it is, trying to secure a fourth consecutive mandate in the face of an animated, energized conservative leader who brings a lot of um, a lot of piss and vinegar uh, to the table and a lot of communication skill, it is time to start to put these things through a screener. Things don't just happen because it's like, well, it, I don't know. It was on track. To, it was on the calendar. Did anybody check? Did you check it was on the calendar? Ah, you know what? Fuck. Who cares? Nobody really cares. Well, our vote doesn't care. So whatever. So it's like didn't happen intentionally. Didn't get managed, didn't, and I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think it's the biggest issue in the world, but I think the mindset is alarming. And I, so I say to that government that's in this spot that it is, facing the challenges that it is, you need a rule of three. Does it need to happen? Does it need to happen now? Right? And does it fucking help us? Those are the three questions you should write on 
the wall and ask yourself every day before you pencil whip something in a briefing And this note, fails all three of those tests. It doesn't need to happen. It doesn't, sure as shit doesn't need to happen now. And the first thing you do is look at this and go, you know what? To agree to which the only people who ever care about this kind of thing are people who hate it, kick it down the road. Okay. This is, this literally, literally, you know, the, the biggest image on this thing is a giant blinking sign that says post election. That's what it fucking says. <laughs> So, you know, does it need to happen? Does it need to happen now? And does it help us? And if it doesn't meet those tests, like if it helps us, but it doesn't need to happen now, maybe you put it into the let's do it column because you're like, I like something that helps us. But if it doesn't help you and if it doesn't need to happen now, do not fucking do it. Start to manage this agenda with intention. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's literally all I have to say. Like, I just, you know, I think I find this, you know, Globe and Mail columns about, oh my God, there is a deeper significance and there's a greater woke conspiracy. Oh, fuck off. Right. But, but it, I am, I'm alarmed by the incumbentitis of it all. Rule of three. Well, the rule well, of three is never let anybody down. In how about the rule of Terry Fox? Like Vimy Ridge, you know, ultimately, you know, I mean, I'm sorry to veterans, but that probably could have happened without much controversy. But Terry Fox, to allow Polyev to stand up there and say, you've taken Terry Fox off the passport and replaced him with a man raking leaves is like, fuck, what are you doing? Yeah, this seems- was, this this has the appearance of something done to them rather than something that they did with intention. And that's a real problem. Well, I, th- I think there's a miss here on some of this stuff for the conservatives, too, and that, that, you know, those same rules in terms of what you are posing and what you're putting in the window and, and trying to highlight for the government, um, that exists, too. And, and, I, and I don't think that this issue comes anywhere close to even the Chinese election interference issue, which I think, is, you know, should largely they should be taking a pass on right now to focus on the economy. But, but this is some mild fraction of the. Uh, the poignancy is a political issue that that, that has. And so, you know, strategy is about choosing what things you're not going to do as much as it is choosing what things you are going to do. And, and the discipline of that is, is, is huge. And, you know, you want to be, you want your, your decisions being driven by strategy, not by tactics. You don't have to go and, and swing at every pitch that comes across the plate here. Uh, even if it's a, you know, a juicy underhand pitch, uh, if it's not on strategy. And I think, you know, uh, I, if, if there's a big win in this for anybody, I don't see it. Right. All right. Well, now that we've moved into the conservatives, let's carry on because our clipping of the day comes to us from Chantal Hébert of the Toronto Star about the divisions within the conservative movement that Poilievre has to deal with. And she cites three premiers that are keeping their distance from him and he keeping their distance from them, like Premier Ford, uh, Bernier running in Portage in the by-election, and the centerized conservatives, now perhaps relabeled. I may have missed the most recent name. Now, so she writes, these are all challenges for him. Now, if I was a poly of partisan, I would say conservatives are out fundraising the liberals like crazy. They're going to, they're leading in the polls. They're going to, liberal position appears to be deteriorating. They're going to beat the PPC like a drum in Portage. And the center ice group represents 10 people at Zoe's in Ottawa. So fuck off, Chantel. But Scott, yeah. what would you say? Uh, well, I think you stole everything I would say. I mean, <laughs> if, I'm, 
if I'm Jenny Byrne, I'm like, I want this column circulated widely. And I, I have a ton of respect for Chantel. But this is exactly where you want expectations set at, right? If you're the conservatives right now, you're like, this is exactly what I want people to think. I want people to credit me a win for winning Portage uh, Lisgar in a serious way. Because, you know, like, I just don't believe that the PPC, I mean, they're... You never know. They may, may reemerge in the context of an actual election in a six-week election campaign. Maybe they will crawl into four or five percent and create a headache for you. That could be consequential. But right now, in terms of Polyev's command over that portion of the electorate, I don't really think it's very complicated uh, by Bernier. And I'm not. I'm not entirely understanding the logic of Bernier running there so that he gets to you know, whatever, get 9% or whatever the Christ he'll get, or maybe he gets higher. I don't even care, but he's going to lose. And it's a victory is a victory. Um, the center ice conservatives don't exist. Okay. It's just lame. It's just, it's essay writing. It's just literally essay writing. So fuck off to that. Okay. That's just a joke. Um, and, uh, and I just think that, you know, when it comes to the premiers, that to me is stands in its own category as strategic choices are, on the part of a variety of people. I think the federal conservatives are making strategic choices. Some of them may be wrong. Some of them may be right. I think a bunch of the premiers are making strategic choices, but I don't read any more into it. And I do believe that, you know, in a campaign, they will campaign for Polyev. And so again, like if the bar is set this low, it's like, oh my God, well, remember when we were reading like a year and a half ago that, you know, Doug Ford wouldn't be seen with Pierre Polyev. Here he is campaigning in the second week of the campaign. So like it all sets up as a win, uh, strategically, tactically, expectations wise for the conservatives. But I mean, I can't imagine anything that matters less right now than the threat of the center ice conservatives forming their own federal party in the next election. I would be more worried about a lightning strike if I were Peter yeah. Polio. <laughs> Jordan, what's your take? Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think Scott's absolutely right on the low expectations that this and, and a lot of the other commentary has sent, set especially around Portage Lisgar. I mean, the, the, the PPC had over 20% of the vote uh, last election there. So they obviously, there's a bit of a base, but the prospect of it, Maxime Bernier coming from Quebec into this particular riding is going to run away with it. I think it seems pretty far-fetched. Uh, so I think that the Conservatives are going to be able to cruise to a victory there without really breaking too much of a sweat. But I would say... Maybe where I differ with Scott on this is that I think, you know, as we've talked about before, Polyev has had this strategy of feeding the base and then, you know, wanting to, to tax centrists to appeal to where the mainstream of voters are at. But I do detect in the last couple of months a whole lot more feeding the base than tacking to the center and staying on issues like the economy where the vast majority of Canadians are hanging out. And I think... Uh, you know, there's a couple examples that came up in the last two weeks that to me seem particularly telling. And so it was reported last week, uh, I think through CTV, that the latest backbencher conservative attempt at a, a fetal rights legislation, basically, so this is this is an anti-choice bill by another name, uh, has come forward. And Polyev's office has confirmed that he's going to vote for it. And this is like, this is as dumb as a sack of hammers. Like, he does not need to do that. Uh, and I think that there's a mistake. Stephen LeDrew, you've been quoted on the curse of politics. <laughs> there's a mistake here because, <laughs> it, like, the taint of being anti-choice 
is not something that will easily wash off to tack to the center, particularly if there's a vote in evidence behind it. Uh, we're seeing also more of some of the things that we've talked about before, like the crap that's coming out from his office that looks like it was produced by a group of 21-year-old campus club conservatives locked in a room with the 2-4 look like they're producing his videos. And actually his latest video that came out over the weekend about the passports is a classic example. If you haven't had yeah. a chance to watch it, you should. It is completely fucking unhinged. Yeah, it's so, so hands down the front of your own pants. It's insane. Absolutely. So he's out there in front of the war memorial. You know, uh, he's 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 uh, he's quoting the Magna Carta. He's talking about Greek. It is and, and like the argument at the core of the video, the critique that he's making about the liberals seeming inability to have pride in Canada. Fine. That's you know, we've talked about that. There's some I think that there's some validity to that argument. But the crux, the thrust of the video was that Trudeau is a secret communist authoritarian dictator. Like, and it's it's batshit. Like the whole thing is just wanking off. Sounds and like, like Jordan Peterson. This is yeah, and this That's is That's exactly what I was gonna say. Sometimes yeah. he sounds like he wants to be Jordan Peterson, pseudo intellectual, get me, I'm smart, I know stuff. And it's totally. all fucked in the head. And like, this is self-indulgent garbage coming out. And like, yes, it may be in this case, if you're working with a leader, if your principal likes to do stuff like this because it keeps him interested, you know, maybe that's why you indulge it, but you don't need to indulge it at this rate. Like it is now becoming a regular thing. And this stuff is out. And don't even get me started on his Mother's Day video, which also, if you haven't seen, you should. It is, it's palpably uncomfortable to watch him prompting his elderly mother into partisan slogans. Like this stuff is bizarre. It doesn't need to happen. It doesn't help him in any way. Uh, and, and I think that it to me shows that within his office, within that team, they have tilted too far towards indulging this, these types of instincts on the, that, that really can have some lasting damage. It is not going to be so easy to walk away from these positions and these arguments and this dynamic when it comes to tap back to the center. And As I we're think that's going to come back to haunt them. That's right. Yeah. Like, you know, the internet remembers. We all remember. And... So to me, you know, I think I think that the Portage Lizard stuff is overblown, but I I think that the broader framework, the bigger symbolism here about which pools he's playing in more often, like there are problems for him there that are brewing and actually seem to be deepening rather than resolving. Okay. I'm going to talk again here about something that will without question pile even more price increases onto what consumers in this country are already putting up with. It's a plan the government quietly slipped into the federal budget at the urging of a special interest group that deploys a cadre of lobbyists in Ottawa. Effectively, the plan would force the railways to transfer cargo to each other, back and forth, at the whim of shippers. But of course, at the expense of the railroads. The people behind this campaign are running a lot of ads on social media, making all sorts of claims about how wonderful this will be for the economy. They say it will make cargo shipments more efficient. They say it will result in more railway jobs, and they actually say it will mean lower prices for consumers. If you believe that, dear listeners, you will believe thunder curdles milk. The fact is, there are only so many trains in this country and only so much track. Pretty much everything consumers consume is moved on those trains at some point. 
Our sponsor, CN, puts tremendous effort into running its network at optimum capacity. It's a remarkably complicated job involving precision coordination and big technology investments. But the railway has had great success. CN trains are leaving and arriving on time, and the company has set records in the past year for moving Western Grain, to cite one example. Now, just imagine what will happen if shippers get involved and start dictating freight schedules. Well, let me spell that out. The cargo handoffs will snarl traffic. They will soak up time and personnel. They will result in delays. They will drive up the railway's costs. And who do you think will pay for it? The same person who always pays, the consumer. In other words, you. Cargo delays will ripple down through the economy. Those accursed waiting lists will grow. And absolutely, certainly, and inevitably, prices will rise. Why the government would want to take such a disruptive step during a time of inflation to please one special interest group is baffling. But that's politics. What I'm saying here is that it will cost you money. Think about that and maybe tell your MP. What if you guys, what if, what if they're operating on the theory that the natural change election is going to give them the three or four points in bump that they need from the last two elections, um, and that what they're really focused on is maximizing turnout. So they are feeding the beast constantly to create an affinity there that means that in low turnout campaigns, the conservative base shows and votes, and the natural change dynamic gives them the, the boost to government. What do you think about that? Well, I, well think I think that that I, also works the other way around, right? Right? It makes them it makes them scarier, and it hardens soft liberal voters. It consolidates progressives potentially around the liberals, and and it that can end up backfiring. Yeah, I think that's the risk. But like, if you're if you were to ask me, what do I think the play is? I think it's exactly what you described, uh, David. Like, uh, you know, uh, you know whether they're doing too much of that. Like, in, any medicine taken in a high enough quantity can become a poison. Like you, you got to be you got to be careful about how much of that stuff you consume. Um, you know, I don't think there's any electoral threat uh, from from the PPC and from Max Bernier. Like, uh, if you look at the Ontario election results in uh, 2022, much closer to when the pandemic was happening, you know, anger around those measures and stuff was much much higher and more palpable at the time. And Ford was the face of a lot of the measures that that aggravated those people the most. What happened to their vote? largely collapsed and and went behind Ford. So uh, if, if that wasn't a problem for Ford, hard to imagine how uh, that's actually a problem for for uh, for Pierre Polyev because he you know was leaning you know very heavily towards those folks and and you know all things being equal they should have a much higher level of support for him. So I, I just don't see that as 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 a thing. And these are smart people, you know, uh, who are working on this stuff. So I, I got to think it leans towards the the, the enthusiasm issue. Uh, oh, uh, if you look at some of the most recent elections, you know, Ontario one's a good example too, you know, where voter turnouts are below fifty percent. You know, I think there's a good chance that in a really divisive negative campaign that you're going to see voter turnout push down to record lows because, you know, as we've talked about before, attack ads tend to suppress vote more than they do uh, uh, compel people to vote for a candidate. So, uh, you know, really nasty campaign. 
Uh, I think you could see voter turnout go down, you know, where it's going to be higher if it's a change election is those who want to see that change happen. Uh, trying to keep those uh, enthusiasts who you know, drove them to, uh, to record membership sales during the leadership, trying to keep those people engaged by throwing them a little more red meat than you otherwise would. Like that all makes sense to me. Um, the, the provincial stuff, I, I find a little bit more, you know, mystifying. Um, uh, is on, on those things, uh, those tend to be more around policy issues. Like I, I, I don't see uh, the strategy and opposing uh, VW. Uh, I only see downside risk in that because you know uh, the people who support that are not ideologues. They're people who are looking at jobs and and the value of their home and their community, and and they've been pummeled by basically 20 years of deindustrialization in southwestern Ontario. And they're starting to see that reverse. And they're 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 rightfully and understandably excited about it. And uh, I think Well not only that, Corey, a- isn't it the case isn't it the case that you know if the conservatives if the conservatives are going to run against the Liberals climate policy, but convince people that they've got some climate policy of their own, which is the trick, mm-hmm. right? Then if they're going to you know, if they're if they're going to run on Biden's coattails, which give them, you know, freedom to drill for more oil and freedom to not have a carbon tax, they've got to buy into at least somewhat to the investment side of Biden's plan to say we've got an alternative plan. And so that would include VW. They should be embracing VW as part of their long term climate plan. Well, I would agree because it's where the economic upside on this is, is, is going to be around sort of the uh, mythical green jobs of the future, which uh, I think of have, have been mythological creatures until fairly recently. And now you're actually seeing where those would exist in, uh, in a real way in uh, places like southwestern Ontario and but also in the north. Right. Like, let's not forget that uh, the Ring of Fire and a number of other mining projects uh, are the fundamental foundation of what would be that green economy where you're doing electrification and batteries and all of that. You don't, uh, you know, we're, we're going from an auto industry and manufacturing base that was mining things like iron ore to make steel and, uh, uh, and aluminum for vehicles, et cetera, to one that needs, you know, uh, nickel and, and, uh, lithium and chromite and a number of other substances that, you know, we don't mine in the, to the levels that we need to in order to produce those things. So, it, there's like a, a win-win here for for the Canadian economy. We're rich in, uh, in these critical minerals. We have a well-educated workforce with a history of producing these kinds of things. Uh, and uh, so we've got a great opportunity in, ahead of us. I, I see only upside in cheering that on, and I don't see an upside in poo-pooing it. Uh, as, it's, know, the- and it's great news for New Democrats in those regions if the Conservatives are tying themselves up in knots about public investment in bringing those kinds of jobs there, and New Democrats are out talking about ensuring high wages, quality of work, community benefits. Like It's, it's really a big opportunity for them. Yeah, I think there are opportunities for for them to go after, you know, where the, some of the weak spots are in the liberal plan, you know, so they've got uh, uh, my best friend, Stephen Gibbo out uh, every other day, uh, basically uh, telling provinces, telling uh, different projects how he's going to stand in their way of getting approval, uh, you know, whether it's the mining projects that we talked about, or whether it's uh, you know, uh, a development of you name the site in southwestern Ontario. Like, 
if you think of what has to happen with things like electrification, you're talking about having to build, you know, thousands of kilometers of new transmission lines that all need environmental approvals and right-of-ways and First Nations agreements and, 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 you know, huge uh, investments in nuclear power generating, uh, which uh, he is seemingly not on board with. So, he's starting to lose yeah. a lot of fights, though, it seems to me. Yeah, well, it seems like, but, you know, I think he's the Jody Wilson-Raybould of, uh, of this administration. Like, he's, he's the 2.0 of that. Uh, he's somebody who I think is uh, perceived as being ready to bolt and do his own thing at any at any given moment. But, you know, what else I would say is he's clearly offside with the government's industrial policy. Like he is he is not a fan. He is an opponent of it. And uh, um, and, you know, and that's difficult. That's a problem for the government. And that's a fault line within that government. And if I were uh, Polyev, I would be pushing on that more than a passport issue because it, it exposes an internal division. It undermines the liberal government's credibility around the economy. It has you talking about the economy. And I think any day that Polyev is talking about the economy, he's winning. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff yeah, the there. The government's that you talked can work about with. streamlining approvals of these kind of projects. Yeah, but, but the, there's been but, no detail on what that means, but, no evidence of what has changed in any approvals well, process. Well, it would appear that the only person who didn't read that part of the budget was the environment minister. He, uh, you know, he he tore that one out and uh, stomped off in, in a little hissy fit. So, you know, like, I, I don't know. I was just going to say, like, uh, just picking up on your, your core question about the conservative strategy, I just think, because I, I think it's going to shape so much of the discussion between now and Election Day as to what is the, the core conservative play, what's their logic. I think it is, as you outlined, I think it is, look, the dense gravity of change is going to provide us with a ton of momentum, and therefore we need to maximize our vote. I think you layer on top of it um, Corey's thoughtful point, which is you're probably going to have a very low voter turnout, especially if the Liberals are successful, because if the Liberals are successful in the next while, what they'll do is they'll hammer the living piss out of Polyev. That will drive up his negatives, but will also further discourage people. So it will more likely mean a, I'm so sick and tired of all these guys. It doesn't make Trudeau a champion. It just hammers Polyev. So all that strategy for the conservatives makes a lot of logical sense. But a good strategy means you also have to have a contingency. And do you have a second gear for the middle of the campaign? If you find that you still need three, four percent, or what if you provide the liberals with enough ammunition on that side of the ledger about your character and who you are that it actually starts to um, become a motivating factor? And now it's not just, oh, does that discourage people from voting? But does it actually motivate suburban women in 905 and lower mainland to say, I got to get to the polls to fucking stop this guy? And so, you know, I think in that world, you have to have some kind of contingency for what is my half to three or four percent of the general election that doesn't just come from my base slash general momentum but is something that i've carved out of the electorate with my hands and with my policies and with my appeal and so i think their strategy is what you say and i think their strategy looks like it's sound and probably works but if you run it exclusively and hard it may rob you of the contingency because it makes you an exclusivity of a choice, not you know something that 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 gives you a path to that three four percent. I think that's got to be the big dilemma for them, right? And well, everything they're, they're, we're talking about is English Canada, of course, because all of this has them heading toward a disastrous performance in Quebec, unless somehow they're able to tap into those Duhem voters and grow them. 
because well, they've they've completely walked away from every sort of establishment approach to winning support in Quebec. There is, I, I think Quebec's a write-off. I think, you know, for listeners of this po- podcast, they've probably heard Jenny talk about this 10,000 times in, in past episodes uh, when she was on the podcast in terms of, you know, the futility of, of trying to, to chase some of those votes. Uh, but there are, there are areas within the strategy where I think, um, you know, it's much higher risk. I think the Jordan Peterson stuff is high risk because, well, it does fire up part of your base. It is also uh, embracing somebody who is, uh, uh, you know, the embodiment of uh, everything. One of the target voter groups you need, you know, hates. And so, if you're if you're looking at how you know Jordan Peterson plays with fifty uh, year old guys like me, uh, you know, it's it's a lot different than it does with my female uh, a counterpart. You know, it's it, 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 he's he's a you know he's a Bond villain from uh, <laughs> for for those voters. Like he's, he fucking nothing. is a Bond villain. Just to um, be clear, he is literally you're giving a Bond, Bond villains a bad name. He like, is the quantum well, of solace bad guy. Yeah. in the desert. Come on, he's more of an Austin Matt. He's more of an Austin Powers bad guy than a Bond uh, bad guy. Well, well I think you give him too much credit. Mm. I'm not. I'm not going to shit talk uh, Bond villains that much. Anyone who owns as many turtlenecks and, and has a white beard <laughs> like me, and your own island villain. sanctuary. Yeah, exactly. I, I do have a vacation property in a volcano, but uh, that's that's for another show. Uh, uh, but the the abortion stuff is another one of these areas, and so. You know, the it's two kids by half, you know, uh, upping the, the, the punishments for somebody who commits a crime that harms a pregnant woman. Well, that's, in, you know, intuitively true. It's also so obviously a Trojan horse uh, uh, around uh, uh, reproductive rights issues. So, you know, I, I, I think on, on those two, I'm like, mm, you know, uh, there are other things that you can rev the base up that that aren't uh, viewed so negatively by by one of the largest uh, target groups that you need in order to win. So. You know, I, I I'd take a pass on on those two, but you know, this is where sometimes ideology can be be blinders, and where you can uh, get yourself in a bit of an echo chamber where you're you're just you know because everybody in the office says it's a good idea, you think it's a good idea. All right, seems like a good segue to Alberta, where a lot happens in a week in an election campaign out in Alberta. Busy times. Uh, two two new polls out. Abacus shows uh, the NDP ahead. The Main Street poll shows the UCP ahead, but says the NDP are winning anyhow. The main issues last week seem to be, obviously, the wildfires continuing in the province, along with clips from Smith before the election campaign comparing vaccines with Nazi Germany, which is not the consensus view in Calgary, I don't think. Um <laughs> And Notley had to fully distance herself this week from Jagmeet Singh, like a complete disavowal. Three times before the cock crows, she cut that guy loose. Um, there's a debate this week. I think it's the only debate of the campaign. Corey, what's going on out there? It's close. It's it's really, really close. Um, I, I thought, you know, we talked last week. I thought that uh, the stuff around the wildfires uh, really uh, was helpful to, to Smith. Uh, but I think if you're looking at the coverage, it got drowned out by the NDP war room, where they just kept throwing up uh, example after example of poor leadership judgment and stuff where uh, they were able to derail uh, Smith's uh, narrative in, in the media and have her dogged by questions around 
uh, Nazism and all the rest. So, you know, uh, it should go without saying using Nazis and Hitler in any comparison uh, as a political candidate. Bad. Don't do it. It's uh, that's going to come back to bite you in the ass. But, um, you know, if you have to be defending that stuff during a campaign, you're not having a good day. So uh, I think she had a, I, if you're just looking at the, the cut and thrust of the campaign over the past seven days, um, you know, the, the week earlier, I thought she was doing better. Uh, and uh, Smith was doing better. And I think this past week, uh, they've been on their back foot uh, more than, than, than leaning in. Um, so we'll see. You know, uh, it's an interesting the spread in those two polls. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a bias towards uh, Coletto in terms of, uh, uh, you know, track record. I have a bias against IVR. Means. Yeah, uh, and, and likewise. Likewise, it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll use IVR as a very rudimentary tracking in, in marginal ridings, uh, but put very little currency in it. And, uh, I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's useless in my experience when it comes to trying to do, you know, voter segmentation with any level of sophistication. So, you know, look, uh, uh, but Coletto's poll is not a really, really high volume number of folks either. So you're no, not going to get the reason. You're, you're not going to get the regional, uh, uh, you know, uh, granularity to, to really be able to call it. Uh, but all, all things being equal, uh, I, you know, it feels like the NDP were winning last week more than losing. Um, I had an interesting conversation with uh, uh, one of the conservative federal MPs at uh, our politics in the Penn dinner. Uh, where a friend of the podcast, Dale Eisler, was uh, one of the nominees. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, uh, some piece said, like, look, I haven't been out door knocking, but a number of my team have, and, and it's the Calgary MP with a number of the provincial swing ridings in his, in his jurisdiction, and said, look, the, at the doors, it's, it's Smith is the issue. And if, if that so is So, Corey, true, she's out front more than you would have her out front. Isn't she well, like she well, is hitting the media every day? She's like she's taking it on full frontally, and maybe she should be a little bit less. Well, it's it's hard to do that because I think the the NDP war room is is putting her in the window and putting her in the window on topics that are uncomfortable and uh, explaining things that are uncomfortable and unhelpful. So, um, but if 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 it is ultimately a referendum on on Smith and her leadership. Uh, in Calgary, she loses. Like they've got to have it be a referendum on who can manage the economy, and if it's if it's on that narrative and on, on that, that's you know ultimately what this is a referendum on. Then then I think Smith sails to victory. If it's a if it's a referendum on on uh, her leadership and and the appropriateness of some of the words she chooses and examples she chooses to use, etc., I think she's gonna have a, a very tough time. I think it you know advantage notly so. Uh, you know, there's a week left. Uh, there's one debate left. There's a chance there to to disrupt things further. But um, all things being equal, uh, it's been a long time since we've seen a, a, a leaders' debate actually uh, shift electoral choices. Uh, uh, you know, it's 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 tough to see in the last week some event happen that changes the trajectory of things. So. We'll see. Scott, you've done lots of debate prep. What would you be saying to either Notley or Smith going into this week? Well, I think the last debate that's changed the course of the election was one that uh, propelled Notley uh, into the premier's chair, right? Um, so she knows um, she knows how to take the stage. I, I think 
I think the big question, I don't think there's any doubt. I don't know what to make of the polls um, because of all the methodological questions you guys uh, have. Um, but I also want to be careful not to believe what I want to believe, which is mm. that, you know, uh, Smith is losing. So I want to be careful not to uh, bamboozle myself. I heard a, a lot of people I know got all super revved up and enthusiastic last week. And I'm kind of like going, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, to me, I do think that the debate's going to matter, but I think the debate is an opportunity for Notley and the NDP, who I would say last week, in spite of the wildfires, were able to show, as Corey said, that they could control the campaign dynamic. They can control the campaign narrative and the dynamic. And they just had so many goddamn videos of her talking, like just so. It's like, hi, I'm crazy. I'm a duck. Hi, I'm crazy. I'm a dinosaur. Like, it's just like fucking every day. It's like a new kind of crazy, right? It's like, oh. Um, and so, I, but I think that question of leadership only takes you so far. I think they need a put away punch, a put away issue. And I think what the real value of the debate is to showcase that. Um, and, and I think that's, that is a strategic, an interesting strategic challenge if you're the NDP. So, because what it means is you go in there, if you're not, and you're saying, I've gotten this momentum on the basis of demonstrating that she's unfit for office, raising questions about her fitness for office. So do I hammer and hammer and hammer away on that in the debate or do I introduce something new? Do I, do I, do I try to bridge that and therefore you can't be trusted on healthcare or do I come back to pensions and you're, you're hiding your, you know, what do I do? I know I don't take it to be economic management issues if I'm not, because I don't, that's not, that's not, my real estate. So how do I how do I leverage what I've gained, but translate it into a new issue that maybe is, allows me to put her away and make a closing argument? And I think that's I think that's a big dilemma. I am really convinced, and I know last week we're we're dilettantes. We flit in and out. You know, maybe maybe Jordan is. We we're dilettantes. We flit in and out of the campaign and that kind of stuff. You know, oh, it's you know it's the it's the arena. Oh, it's this issue. But I I kind of think that. The pension plan, man, I think, you know, the fact that she's not disavowing the pension plan, that she just says, listen, I don't want to talk about it now because it's so uncomfortably unpopular, but I'll get to it if I'm reelected. I, I think if I'm not, Lee, that to me is the best. It's like, well, we can't fucking trust you because when you talk to a pastor, you tell him what he wants. But then when you talk to the public, you tell them that you were lying to him. And now we're not supposed to believe you're lying to us now. And then I'm going to trust you with my fucking pension. Like, not just a run-of-the-mill, what's government doing today issue, but my fucking pension. My when I'm too old to work and it's the thing I need to make certain that I can buy heat. You're going to fuck with that? You, who's crazy as a duck? So I, I don't think I'd go there. I don't know. I, I don't know whether I'd do that one because I think it's too complicated. Um I but I like the, I, 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 I like the, so sure I about like, that. I like I like the arena issue because it's very simple to understand <laughs> and it's about judgment and priorities. And I would just say, look, uh, you know, uh, keep it tied to leadership. I'm not walking away wait, from wait, that. Wait, I think it's a good wait, issue wait, and it's controversial. Wait, wait, leadership is about choices, and my choice is to put that 700 million bucks into to the Foothills Hospital, not into Murray Edwards' pocket. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's contemporary. It's, it's easily understood. Uh, you know, we got the playoffs going on, you know, it's hockey's just a little more top of mind. Like there, there are a lot of reasons why I think that's, you know, that's a, uh, 
uh, a good one to uh, to use as an example of of, of poor decision making. I think I'll just throw out one last thought because then Jordan will actually tell us what the right answers are. But I think the one issue that I think maybe gives them hives about that is it's money. It's it's and, and money is close to the economy. And do they go, well, we're veering away from our, our safest subset of issues. And so I, I and I but I agree with you. I mean, it's the most obvious translation of who are you? What kind of choices would you make? Are you going to call all of us who got a needle Nazis? Are you going to give money to a billionaire rather than a hospital? That all translates. And like you, I can do that house card in a second and have a lot of fucking fun trying to conjure up a debate moment. But I think that that might be their hesitation. I'm just speculating. Who knows? Jordan, how many provinces is Jagmeet Singh still the leader of the NDP in? Well, uh, well, none, well, none, David. He's the leader of the federal NDP, and our family is big, and the cousins don't always get along. You know? There are many houses. There are many houses. Many and rooms listen, in my father's. Uh, He's in the yeah, far I think this is not at all surprising. We've talked about this before, and actually, this this wasn't even like the harshest. Listen to her put on her nothing to see here, folks. Voice this sort of a no, no. Like, to be expected and not to be commented upon or even discussed any further on this podcast. Well, no, I'm just remembering. I'm remember like I think that the most heated, you know, the most heated disavowals and and distancing that I can recall came when the federal government and you know ended up purchasing a pipeline like largely at the behest of the Alberta government. Like that that was I think a moment of like maximum anger and true division now right now this is this is more of a like an amicable separation <laughs> at this point and as i've talked about before i don't think this is really damaging to either of them in fact i think it's got it's got some benefits for notley to come out and drum on exactly how much distance there is between her and Singh. uh and and so for her to do that now makes total sense um and i don't think it hurts him well, how does Either it not hurt him? Jesus Christ. She's basically told Albertans not to vote for him, right? I wouldn't well, vote and, for him. His position on oil and gas part, is wrong. I wouldn't vote for that guy yeah. if I were you. Well, but again, like where the federal NDP is competitive in Alberta and where the provincial NDP are competitive is, is almost completely different. Like we're talking about two seats in Edmonton for the federal NDP. Uh, and I, and, and I know. This is something that is not likely to be an area of massive growth, even if we are in a future with a, with another Notley government. It is a different set of issues. It's a different set uh, of things that are motivating people to the ballot box, and the dynamic is really is really distinct. So I don't think it hurts him that much. I think that it allows him to maintain a posture on climate issues that's appealing in in other places like. BC that are really, really important electorally to the federal New Democrats. And, and broadly you. speaking, I still think this division serves them both. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's true. They're not best buddies. Um, and uh, I don't think that the argument is really sticking in quite the same way it did when Daniel Smith was axing it all around just transition. So I think that it's lost a bit of its mojo uh, for Smith, um, in terms of also how she overstates the case, you know, the idea that Jigmeet is somehow Notley's boss. Like, I don't think that most people believe that, but I do think 
I do think that the New Democrats had a really a great week last week. And it's like, this is like that awkward middle moment of the campaign where, you know, it's so, it's so tough to actually to shift course. And, but they were, they are driving the bus, they are driving the bus. And, and as I think we discussed like way back in March, even the war room has, has deep pockets, has deep pockets and has been doling them out with incredible discipline. And that's really paying off because the the pastor video was just the tip of the iceberg and because it's coming out drop 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 that's it's serving every day to derail the smith campaign in a new way and that's really what you want to have happen and i think just to go to the discussion about are these attacks about smith's credibility like is that baked in for voters already which is something we've touched on i think what's shifted in the last week and and we can see it a little bit in the types of attacks that they're rolling out is they're, they're almost like unifying the two the two arguments about her judgment and about the the topics you're you're seeing judgment and hospital sell-offs judgment and healthcare system who pays for doctors which again drives the issue of are you going to need to personally pay for a doctor and i thought actually their announcement about um about albertans getting real plastic health cards because we're never going to make you use your credit card on doctor was, was sort of cute. Uh, I didn't know that Albertans just get sad pieces of paper as their health card, but now, you know, um, and, you know, anecdotally on the ground, the stuff that's sticking is that it's really going right back after her judgment on healthcare and the risks that that poses for public Medicare. It's going after CPP. Um, and then the other thing that's sticking is Nazis. It turns out that that actually grabs people's attention, even if they already have doubts about her leadership and her judgment, that was something that rose above the noise and people have really, really taken that home. So I think that absolutely like they're, they're pulling those pieces together in a way that is uh, at the right moment in the campaign. And it's a strong stance leading into the debate where hopefully she'll be able to really hammer those, those home as tied to the issues that are, that are sticking on the doorstep. And sorry, Scott was trying to get in. No, I was just saying it's reassuring to hear that Nazis are still unpopular. I know some of us who are uh, getting to wonder. Uh, but there's one one other thing though that we haven't touched on, which I think is really interesting. There is a bit of a whisper campaign out there yes, around uh, around uh, that. Oh well, you can you know you can vote for Smith because don't worry, we're going to dump her after the election. Uh, which is uh, you know uh, we were talking about this the other day, uh, David, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk through it but the you know there are, this harkens back to Tr trudeau senior moment <laughs> people don't remember this but trudeau trudeau when clark when clark won in 79 trudeau stepped down as leader of the liberal party and so then the liberals defeat the the clark government in the house and and he comes back as leader but people really want to vote against clark but they don't want to vote for Trudeau. They just hated Trudeau just months before, really hated him, beat the shit out of him. Like in 79, 79, the Liberals won like 40 to 50 seats in all of English Canada, all of non-Quebec. It was brutal. Um, and, uh, and, and Trudeau promises, promises that he will uh, resign if elected. And that's the platform the party went into the election on, right? You can get rid of Clark, you can get rid of this 18 cents a gallon, and get rid of Trudeau all at the same time. But of course, Trudeau, as was his want, did not live up to his election promise. 
and deep into his fifth year was conjuring up global peace missions in order to give himself the status to try to win another election campaign. Um, so don't believe the bait and switch. I'll quit if I win. They don't quit if they win. <laughs> um, that actually caused me when you you put up the challenge that if if in this close race uh, where the government of the day is not has not yet been in control of the campaign um, and therefore the debate becomes really important. What do they do? And we all went to Notley. Just take one second. What does what does Smith do? The obvious answer is she focuses on the economy. She's not going to promise to step down because she's not willing to make that promise. You know, Trudeau saw the logic in it um, and just thought, well, guess what? If I win, I'll fucking pull that out. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I do wonder about her generic arguments. I mean, she will be very much victim to the most scintillating moment in the debate, which will not be her just talking about the economy, right? And so it will be whether whether the NDP says, I'm taking Nazis and I'm translating that into leadership and I'm then leveraging it into healthcare, pensions or the arena, right? One of those is going to be the hotter moment. So then you have to say, well, what is she going to do? And I think one of the interesting challenges for them and one of the interesting questions is how explicitly they say in the debate, the NDP are about to win this campaign. Like, you know, like uh, you elevate the anxiety and elevate the importance of your economic argument and the threat by saying it's real. And there'll be a huge desire to not acknowledge it. There'll be a huge desire on a part of large portions of the electorate to kind of ignore it, not believe it. And there's, you know, confusing and contradicting polls and all that kind of stuff. So I think one of the challenges for them is how sharply do they present the NDP threat and the return to a not the government and what that might mean? Because leaders hate to verbalize the possibility of their own demise. They hate to. Now, she's not going to pull up Pierre Elliott Trudeau, but will she even say the reason you need to pay attention to the economic arguments I'm making is that they're this fucking close to re-seizing the legislature. And I think that'll be something to watch. Well, and with already, we got, Abbott has had one in five UCP voters now switch to the NDP. There's a risk to that strategy as well. Give well, they got to go hard. They got they got to go hard yeah. on the NDP economy. It's got to be NDP times are tough times, and that's got to be their message right now. You bet. Yeah. All right. So we're wrapped up. Uh, Gordon Pinson, can you take us home, sir? Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. All right. Who's up with the hey you? Well, I'll, I'll hop in with uh, with uh, with one on the mayoral race here in Toronto. Uh, and it's for Olivia Chow. Uh, uh, hey, Olivia, read the room. Uh, you shouldn't be out campaigning uh, with stooges for the Chinese Communist uh, Party, the uh, the infamous council of newcomer organizations that uh, uh, Jen Tang uh, started Liberal MP uh, that uh, are most noted of, of recent times of, of uh, 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 playing gobles for the, the administration, talking about how uh, uh, the internment camps for Uyghurs don't exist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, really gross stuff. Uh, and you shouldn't be spending time uh, rubbing rubbing shoulders with those people and accepting uh, endorsements from them. It, it's it's really, really fucking gross. So just you know, do, do a little better there and don't do it. If she just made no news, she would be fine right now. Yeah. 
just needs to stop making news. Um, Scott, you got to hey you. I do. It's a mirror image of uh, of Corey's to a degree, because um, my hey you is to everybody in the mayor's race who's not Olivia Chow. And the point I would make is, notwithstanding um, kind of wide variety in polling results, there's one point of emerging consensus, and that is that she is clearly the established front runner, and probably by a, a by a, a good margin, uh, not an not an unconquerable margin, not in a margin that can't be closed. But she's the front runner, and therefore she is the centralizing principle of this campaign if you're running against her. And so I think we now have entered into a new stage in this campaign, which is who's going to be the unchow? Who's going to be the alternative? Who's going to emerge from a, a de facto primary uh, to take her on? I don't think it's going to be four candidates. If it is, and she wins, and that's the best possible thing for her. If it's, you know, Matt Lowe and Saunders. and So to my mind some tough decisions are going to have to be made. The other candidates, there's a debate coming up tonight in Toronto. The other candidates are going to have to decide, right? What are they going to do? I personally think <laughs> that if I'm a candidate in this race, not named Olivia Chow and not named Mark Saunders, I got to go and go hard because Mark Saunders is the best possible opponent for Chow because he's limited in his appeal. He's not that good. He was frankly a failed chief of police. He's going to falter. Uh, so somebody's got to eat his lunch and take over that spot and become the unchow. And so I'm looking for the Josh Matlows, the Annabellos, uh, the Brad Bradfords, those, that group of people, someone's going to have to go up one side and down the other of Mark Saunders on their way to Olivia Chow. And uh, that's got to happen. It's got to happen now. This race is going mm. to be won by Olivia Chow unless someone makes a move. And that may mean dropping out. It may mean that Mitzi Hunter has to say, I got no job in the legislature, but I got to drop out and throw my support to Annabelle or vice versa. Or Matlow has to be, you know, pushed off a water I, I would just, I would just, I would just point out that Mitzi was the only person other than Chow who gained in the polls and is ahead of Balao by three or four points. Well, it so. depends. Mm -hmm. Depends on which poll you read. Well, the one I read today. Well, there's two out today. <laughs> God damn it. Get up earlier. Read more newspapers. <laughs> but the bottom line is <clears throat> they need to go after, uh, they need to bring Chow down. They need to expose her to scrutiny. Her candidacy won't stand up to scrutiny. And uh, so she needs to be exposed to scrutiny. But I'm interested because there's a lot of these candidates that are hovering around 6-7% that have very highly touted consultants working for them and working on their campaigns. So I am interested to see what these people pull out of the bag. Well, it's time to put out some magic tricks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan? I'm going to say, well, Olivia's manager, Mocha Hay, is no no slouch herself. So it's going to be a, a, a battle of the titans there. Uh, so first, a small correction and a shout out to my friend, Nathan Rotman, who is indeed managing the Alberta campaign. Many regrets. Didn't mean to demote you. Love you, my friend. On the new, new Democrats, please stop texting me. But Top is doing uh, the war room. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's the green team, right? Like, like we're, you know, it's a small family. We're all just there. Everyone's yeah. doing their thing. Uh, yeah. But of course, Nathan uh, yeah. brings some absolutely top tier ground game talent uh, that I think we're going to, we're really going to get to see uh, a lot more of in the next couple of weeks, which is very exciting. But my Hey You this week, uh, fresh out of the Canadian Labour Congress uh, convention in Montreal last week is to the Canadian Labour Movement. So it was a great gathering. Uh, it was the first in-person one since the pandemic. Uh, new CLC President B. Brusque 
uh, was really her chance to to see everybody together. Two thousand delegates. Um, she had a great keynote. Uh, there was a lot of energy and unity in the House of Labor, which was great to see. Uh, but there was also something really interesting. I thought that one of the you know the big showcases there was leadership of labor labor unions in the U.S. that are organizing in difficult to organize sectors. So there was Chris Smalls, which is the head of the Amazon labor union, folks who are organizing Trader Joe's. And something that's really notable is that nobody there, like those new cases of organizing in tough to organize work environments were not being done through traditional unions. These were all independent organizations that came out. And I think that there is a real wake up call there for labor unions that in these environments where where workers are really, really struggling against anti-union employers, even though the labor movement is having a moment and has a lot of mojo, they are not finding traditional unions to be their right vehicle for organizing. So I think, I hope that people came back from that convention, not just energized and inspired about those success stories, but also taking some lessons about why folks didn't turn to big unions to do that organizing. So I'm hoping that, uh, that that's the takeaway for lots of people there. Excellent. Hey, can I, I, I add on like one little comment on that? You know, I, I, I doubt you saw a lot of conservatives at the Canadian Labour Congress uh, meeting, and, and I think that's a mistake. You know, I think uh, it's a mistake that more conservatives aren't going to those kinds of events and and having a presence there. But anyway, my my little aside. There you go. Very good. My Hey You is a nice little gentle one. It's a, I had a lovely bipartisan experience last week at the Politics and the Pen dinner. Uh, Scott Aitchison, a conservative MP, was at my table and former leadership candidate. And just a wonderful guy. Had a thoroughly enjoyable uh, evening and conversation. He's a big fan of this podcast because of the cross-partisan banter between all of us. And anyway, just a good guy. Enjoyed meeting him. And I plan to get to know him better. So, thank all of you uh, for being here this week. A lot of fun as always. Thanks to everybody who watched or listened. And thanks to our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. And we'll be back next week with more of The Curse of Politics. See you then.